Welcome to Grayson 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. This is Ed Mellick, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sal Dietry, or maybe I should say I'll be joined by Sal Dietry in a moment. We did a booth switchover with the previous show, and we don't have a headset for Sal. So he's out roaming around and looking for something right now. Excited about our guest tonight. I saw Ann Bradley speak a couple years ago, and she told a story about her daughter when she was born, about nine weeks early, and she spent Bailey Grace five weeks in an incubator with a tiny tube that ran down her nose and to her stomach to feed her. And Anne marveled during her hospital stay at, at the care that she got and that she often thought about as she was living in another country, like in Bangladesh or something, that she wouldn't receive such care. And she considered how fortunate she was. She also thought about that tiny little breathing tube and the people who conceived it and designed it and tested and made and delivered it. And these are people just like you and me who almost certainly encounter mundane and frustrating things in their jobs and never get to see the impact of their work on people like Anne and Bailey. So Anne's going to join us and talk about higher purpose and impact of our work, no matter how ordinary it may seem, and how capitalism, while imperfect, is the best system we've got for lifting people up. So Anne, welcome to Grace and 30. Thanks for having me, Ed. It's great to be here. Yeah, let's talk about, I mean, you, you made a statement that was pretty incredible. You said, uh, when I saw you talk a couple of years ago, that economic freedom that we have in this country that we enjoy here literally saved yours and your baby's life. And I wanted you to kind of expand on what you meant by that. Sure. Uh, I love to tell stories to kind of drive home these points, because I think that's how we really embrace the ideas behind them. Uh, and so this, this story, as you've told it, is a story of um, something that I marvel at that I still think about, even though my daughter's four years old. And, you know, the story is that she was born very prematurely, 31 weeks, and so she needed a lot of support to live. And as you mentioned, while I was in the hospital on hospital bed rest for five weeks before her birth and then for five weeks after when she basically lived because other people had innovated. I mean, she lived in an incubator and there were machines and they were monitoring her, you know, her heart rate and other vital statistics. And they would let us know if something was going wrong so that we could fix it in the moment. And I, I really thought about this feeding tube, which, by the way, was developed by a doctor named Henry Turkle, and he filed the patent. It's called an infant nasal feeding tube. He filed the patent in 1951. And I had to go research that because I thought, wow, this is somebody who helped save my daughter's life at a time when preemies weren't even surviving. So he was using it for an entirely different purpose. And it's the innovation of people like that that I and other ordinary people we get to rely on when we have a system of economic freedom. And economic freedom really means that we're free to pursue what God wants us to do. If God has created you to be a doctor, that you're free to pursue that. Or, you know, open up a food truck. There's nothing mundane um, in a market economy if God has called you to do it. And I think what's more important is that in a market economy, we need each other. The neurosurgeon needs the janitor. The neurosurgeon needs the Federal Express driver because they all come together to give us these things like incubators and feeding tubes. And what I marvel at is that if I was left to my own devices, if I had to do it all myself, I could do very little, as, as is the story for all of us. So God created us to need each other. We, are, we have to come into a community, and the question is, what kind of economic and political system encourages that? And economic freedom is the way to do it. Yeah, th this story was really near and dear to my heart as I prepared for this interview because my wife has uh, pancreatic cancer, and 
they went down her throat about 15 months ago. I, I can't even imagine how you do this. And they stuck a stent in her bile duct between her liver and her pancreas. And I'm like, how do you do that? And, and who, right. does, who thought about that stent? Who designed it? Who tested it? Who made it? All those things you talked about. And it seemed like an even harder procedure than what they did for your daughter. And it really is a marvelous and amazing thing. So in the book, you mentioned you and the other contributors to, to a book, and I didn't mention it in the intro, that um, you co-edited uh, two books, actually. You wrote a, a chapter as well, and the recently released one is called Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. And in this book, you and the other contributors make the argument that capitalism, despite its flaws, and it certainly has its flaws, is the best system we've got. And I'd, I'd like you to talk about this. Tell us why it's the best thing we've got. Absolutely. And I want to be careful that we define our terms. So when we say capitalism in this book, we're referring to it in the way that economists refer to that, which is which means that private individuals own the economic means of production. And in other words, uh, private individuals acquire capital factories, uh, make investments in the economy, and they decide the government doesn't do this. And so, you know, what the amazing part of a capitalist economy is that it doesn't try to change people into something that they cannot be. So I think the powerful aspect of allowing private individuals to own the means of production, i.e. capitalism, what's powerful about that is that it doesn't require that we change people into benevolent altruists. Um, you know, when we act benevolent, that's good. But what history has shown us is that we can't run societies based on the idea that we can elect or nominate, whether it's a president or an economic czar or a dictator. Uh, we can't rely on finding the best person who can disavow themselves of their own self-interest and always act benevolently. And so what, what market economies do is, you know, they take people as they are, often pursuing their own self-interest. But what they do is they provide us with incentives to innovate. And so, again, to your wife's story, to my daughter's story, there's a thousand stories. Every one of your listeners has a story. Um, and our stories are that other people who came before us, who didn't even know us, had some strange incentive to serve us. How do you serve people you don't know? It's, a, it's an odd, counterintuitive concept. And what capitalism or market economies do is that they kind of indirectly do this, right? They don't ask us to, again, change who we are, but they provide incentives so that you can only profit if you give people something that helps them. So, you know, we can look at the Bill Gateses of the world and the Steve Jobs of the world and all these kind of people, and we say that in a market economy, they're more likely to serve us than to exploit us. But in a non-market economy, in a centrally planned economic society, uh, then we don't have any evidence that that will ever happen. And in fact, what we saw from the Soviet Union, what we see happening in Venezuela today, is that as we move away from a market economy, people suffer and people die. So I, I think it's important for us to keep that in mind, that this is not just kind of economics, inside the beltway, you know, policy chit-chat. This is something that matters for people's livelihoods. And if we get it wrong, people suffer and they will die. And so we have to get our thinking clear about this. And, and that is to say, how do we get people to serve each other, uh, you know, as often as possible? It's not a perfect system, as you mentioned, but it seems to be the best we've got. Yeah, you seem to mention a number of things in the book. You said capitalism is responsible for more, not less flourishing. If capitalism was oppressive in some way, you wouldn't see this kind of flourishing. You said, on average, we live longer, healthier lives. I mean, a good example is you having the, the baby in a hospital like that that could 
give the proper care to your child. Poverty in non-capitalist countries is systemic. I mean, any other things? I mean, these are really super practical things. This is this is life or death in some cases. Absolutely. And, you know, I think that the uh, systemic exploitation and systemic poverty, you know, we're living in 2017. And I think that the tragedy of 2017 isn't that some people are famously wealthy. I mean, you know, it's not the fact that Bill Gates has you know 10 houses or whatever he has. I, I think that the tragedy is that there are people every day who have to worry about where where's my food? Where's my next meal coming from? Am I going to die of malaria or the flu? Uh, you know, you and I aren't going to die of malaria. It's very unlikely. We're not going to die of the flu. It's very unlikely. Why, why these systematic differences? And it's about, again, as you mentioned, it's about the institutions, the economic and political and legal institutions of the place. And so what we want for the world is the places that are, remain the poorest for them to be able to transition out of this. Because what that means and the way we have to think about this is that there are people living in, for example, modern-day Afghanistan. They're very poor, and, you know, the kind of likelihood is that well, they'll remain poor. That's just their kind of fate because they were born in Afghanistan. And, and that doesn't need to be the case. It's very possible that Afghanistan, among other places, can be transformed into a vibrant market economy. And what's the global benefit of that? It's that we get to experience the talents and the creativity of people who today are just struggling to survive. So see, when people can move out of this kind of um, subsistence living, then we get to benefit from their human creativity, and they are empowered to use their gifts to serve other people. So it's really exciting for all of us. So I think that's why we need to have kind of um, skin in the game, all of us in this. We need to say that, you know, it's not just, um, you know, it's not something where I'm removed and far away. It's, I need to be actively involved in thinking about how do I transform the world. And I would say one last thing on this. You know, the evidence over the last 250 years is quite clear that we're moving in the right direction. I mean, in 1990, 45% of the planet was living in a state of abject poverty, under $2 a day. Today, uh, it's you know, 8%, 9%. So that's just phenomenal and unprecedented. We didn't even think in 1990 that, that we could say that. So we're moving in the right direction. We just need to hasten that, right? We need to speed it up and not slow it down. Well, you mentioned uh, Bill Gates and some people that are super wealthy. You know, a lot of people argue against capitalism because of the, the growing divide between the 1% and everybody else. And I guess my question to you is, does capitalism, in a sense, favor the rich at the expense of the poor? This is a great question. And I think that capitalism, again, as we define it economically, where private individuals get to make economic decisions about production and investment, then it, it's quite the opposite. Um, it's, in this way, it empowers ordinary people. Uh, the the riches and the spoils don't just go to the people who you know kind of can commandeer politically all the resources. Which again, this is kind of our history as human beings. It's right that some people have been very wealthy because they've been able to plunder and exploit, and, and the rest of us have been poor. Bill Gates is able to be rich precisely because he tapped into a need and experimented. And there was no guarantee, by the way, that he was going to be right or do a good job. He did. And, uh, you know, the market competition of other people waiting in the wings like Michael Dell and Steve Jobs that are trying to tap into that profit, that induces the Bill Gateses of the world to think even better how to serve us. How do I give people what they want at the best possible level of quality and the lowest possible price? 
again, we're not relying on altruism to get this done. It's the incentives of market competition. So the poorest places in the, on the planet where people are exploited or where you don't have these institutions of market economies and capitalism. So I think actually the, res- the reverse is true. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't be worried about income inequality and, you know, the 1%. And the reason I say that is because, you know, what we really want to pay close attention to is how people earn their money. How do they get rich? Do they get rich because they're problem solving? You know, that's a good thing. And that might lead to some people being much richer than the rest of us. But we all get richer in the process. That's very different than kind of political cronyism, which is a system in which corporations can kind of exchange political favors for resources. uh, And that's where we get the, the worst kind of income inequality. So I don't think we should reject income inequality out of hand. But I think we have to take a very nuanced look and ask, how are the 1% in different societies getting there? If they're getting there because they're innovating, that's great. But if they're not, we need to kind of find a way to stop that. So does that tie in with the, you talked about the words good inequality and bad inequality in the book. I mean, is is that kind of the, the definition in a sense, the bad inequality is cronyism? And, that's right. And, and the good inequality is when people are actually innovating and, and they're becoming successful because they're giving people something they really need and want. And, and Yes, so that's exactly right. And I think what is um, not always obvious in all of this is that, sure, Bill Gates becomes very wealthy. Steve Jobs became very wealthy because of his ideas and being able to implement those ideas into consumer products. But, I mean, think about the first iPad that came out. It's probably 10 years old or 9 years old now, something like that. I think the first iPad was about $1,000, and it wasn't that great. I mean, it was it was an innovation, and it was good. We hadn't seen it before. But my family just bought an iPad last year. I think we paid $200 for it, and it's better. It's smaller, it's more compact, it's more durable, it has more memory. So that's the thing that we don't talk about, is it's not just about what you know who has how much money. It's about what your money gets you. And so I can get an iPad as an ordinary person. I'm much more able to have access to that consumer product because it's been innovated upon. And in that innovation, the quality has been raised and the price has been decreased. And again, this is what helps the middle class and the lower income groups. That's what we want. It's not just an increase in income. It's also an increase in consumer purchasing power. So Sal rejoined us. He found a headset. So I'm glad to have him in here. <laughs> Amazing that a, uh, a radio station might have that laying around. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, this trend? I've seen it at Mason. I've seen it at, at Catholic University here in the district. Uh, where they're going into humanities programs and looking for entrepreneurs. Is that, uh, is that an interesting mix? Yeah, you know, I think an entrepreneur can come from anywhere uh, because what we're really looking for is a person who can um, find new ways of doing things. And, you know, I, I've been doing, you know, even in this interview, I've been looking at kind of the most successful people when I talk about entrepreneurs. And that's probably not the right way for even for me to be doing it. I mean, Bill Gates certainly is an entrepreneur. He's very successful. But, you know, if you're working at your job and you find an innovation, a new way of doing things, a project you come up with, a plan, a procedure, that's entrepreneurship. And, you know, you're rewarded for that if you can find, if you can innovate and find a better way to do things. So I I think entrepreneurs are everywhere. And I think entrepreneurship, I think, is part of what you're asking. It can take many faces. Um, It's not just kind of IT or the tech industry, which is, you know, kind of very hot right now. But I think entrepreneurship can come even in the nonprofit sector. How do we be how do how do we become better 
at providing charity and philanthropy? How do we save more? How do we help more? Those types of things. So yes, I absolutely think it can come from anywhere. And also your thoughts on how how faith can play a role in productivity. I I read an article once and and they were talking about, look, if if you hate to do your timekeeping, if there's something you just don't like to do at work, offer that up for your family. You know, offer that up as a prayer. Offer that up for someone that you're going to do that for someone who might be suffering as a way of people finding value in, in every little thing that we do and as a way to boost overall productivity. I think of this because I think of the millennials. You know, they give, they're given such a bad rap, but, you know, the millennials you know, don't seem to be the uh, the 70 hour work week uh, crowd, right? They're looking to to work and go to the beach and and uh, and do a lot of different things in their lives. H- how are you seeing that sort of drawn into a capitalist society? Yeah, so you know, there's a kind of a lot in that question, and I think it's all really important because we have to think about the, how technology is changing, how work is changing. But to, to address the first question you asked, which is Kind of what is the faith-based perspective of all of this? Because for me, that's where, you know, that's where I start in my thinking. And, you know, we were created to work. And if you're a, a, a Christ follower, then that's, you know, what you're required to believe, that you are here for a purpose. And I think what's very powerful about this perspective that Scripture gives us is that you are unique. You are imago Dei, created in God's image. And so there's never been another you just like you. And you may do something that a lot of people do. For example, I'm an economist. There's a lot of economists. But I can only do it the way that Ann Bradley can do it. And God is requiring me and asking me right now in my life, even though I'm a wife and a mother, I have all this stuff going on, that's what I'm supposed to spend some of my time doing. And you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of mundane tasks that are part of all of our our, of our jobs, regardless, you know, of what you do. And so I think, to your point, it's not all going to be fun all the time. But it all can be valuable. And I think the first part is getting centered on what has God asked me to do and being obedient in following him through that. And that means going to scary places and doing things you don't think you can do. And, you know, I think the millennial generation is going to be very empowered to do this um, because they're going to think outside the box. They're not just going to think about, okay, you know, for example, my grandfather was a firefighter. And he became a firefighter when he was 21, and he did that his entire life. He had a firefighter's funeral when he died. So, you know, this was his whole life. And this next generation, that's not the way they're going to work. They're going to have not only different jobs, but different careers. So I think we're talking about real risk takers here who are willing to think outside the box. At least that's what I see in my classroom, and I think it's exciting. But our perception of work still has to be, even though it changes a lot, if God's calling me to do it, it's valuable, even the mundane things. So I think your your kind of comment there about offering it up as something that I'm doing, I'm helping other people, even the e- tedious emails we have to send, these are part of what God has asked you to do, and in doing it, you're serving other people. And that's, when you think about it that way, it's a privilege to do it, not a drudgery to do it. That's right. Yeah, so biblically, I mean, we're supposed to be serving others, helping them flourish. I, you know, I heard you talk about, gave a little treatise on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and you talked about the word for work in, in Genesis 2, meaning to serve. And, mm-hmm. and, and we were created, I mean, before all the trouble started with Adam and Eve, uh, we were given the task, or Adam and Eve, of, of working, of tending to the garden and, and taking care of the garden. Um, and you want to comment on that a little bit? 
Absolutely. So this is where I start with everything. You know, Genesis has so much in it for how we should be living our lives in 2017 and beyond. Uh, It's not just a story of how God created the earth and then, okay, that's kind of interesting historically and and important, and and now I'm going to move on. It actually has everything to do with what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to view yourself, why are you here, and how do you fit into God's design and his desires for his creation? Because as Christ followers, that's well, we need to, those are the questions we have to ask. What are God's desires for his creation, that it glorifies him? And then what are his, and how does he create the world, and what is our role in it? So the first thing that I, I see from that is that we are stewards. In fact, the word economics comes from the Greek word oikonomia. So this means to, right, to manage a household or to manage the resources closest to you. That's not an accident. So stewardship is inherently about being prudent with what God has given you, time, treasure, talent. And Genesis 2 tells us that we're created to work, to work the garden and to care for the garden. And as you mentioned, work is the word in Hebrew is abad, and that means to serve. Now, interesting, going back to the, you know, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, and others, Henry Turkle, the guy who invented the, the nasal feeding tube, these are people who have served other human beings by applying their talents in a creative new way, by using existing resources in new ways. That's what entrepreneurship is about. And so that's what God is asking us to do. And that's why, you know, our uniqueness and our dignity are so important and have to be incorporated into the economic system that we agitate for. So, again, back to kind of how market economies fit into all of this. They really help us and empower us to be better stewards and also to be prudent use- users of our scarce resources. So it's, you know, it's not about kind of pillaging the planet. It's about cultivating it. How do we take what we have and create more than was there yesterday? And each of us has a role to do in that. And again, I think if you reexamine your role in the world through that lens, it's very empowering. And this, again, this doesn't just mean, okay, go be Bill Gates. It could mean you're you're a wife and a mother and you're raising kids at home. It doesn't have to be monetary work. It can be all different types of work. So work, when we say that, we mean it in the broadest sense of the term, whatever God has called you to do. So we ask every guest that comes on here to issue a call to action, just to challenge our listeners in some way, and, and it can be two or more calls to action, and also to share anything that's on their heart and they feel compelled to share. So what would you like to, what message would you like to get out to folks who are listening? I think the first message is that um, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the direction, um, you know, that the planet is heading in, in terms of poverty and in terms of empowering people to use their talents. We still have, you know, uh, sin uh, is a devastating thing, and we have to constantly wrestle with that. But I don't want people to feel despondent. I think Part of the reason we wrote this book is to try to empower people to think about not just, okay, let's talk about economic systems, but really to think about your personal role in an economic system. And I want people to feel very encouraged that God has created you for a purpose, for a reason, that there's never been another you, that he loves you, and that in all of that, there's a lot of responsibility that we have but so much joy can come from everyday work when we approach it with that right attitude. And when we think 
and we're going to work, and that's allowing us to serve people we'll never meet. I think for Christians, that's extremely exciting. So I think that is both an encouragement I would offer, but a call to action, which is let's take seriously what our gifts are. Let's take stock of those and really be obedient to what God has called us to do, because I think sometimes we want to do our own thing, myself included. And I think that, that requires constant prayer and just kind of a recentering of our life. But I think this thought, you know, this framework of vocation and work and how that leads to kind of economic systems is really powerful. So it's clear that this, you know, economics and thinking about these sort of things is your calling, correct? I mean, you know, 30 seconds. For how, now. <laughs> for now. How did you get called into this? How did you slip into this? Well, you know, it's so funny. I grew up inside the Beltway, and we just talked about politics all the time because I feel like that's what people do. And, you know, I wasn't into sports or at, very much. I did a, a dabbled. But, you know, this is how my father and I bonded. I have two brothers. And so this was our thing was we talked ideas and talked politics. And that prompted me to become an economics major. Uh, I also got to visit the Soviet Union. Um, and I really saw how devastating it was to live without economic freedom. And I think all of those things really contributed to me feeling like part of my job is to communicate these ideas, to write about these ideas, and to talk with my students about these ideas. So I feel it's been a long journey to this, but I feel like, you know, this is what God wants me to do, and I'm in the right place. But if he calls me to do something tomorrow that's different, I need to listen to that as well. All right, Anne, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We love what you're doing, trying to encourage people to think about their and honor their higher purpose at work and to, to pe- help people understand that capitalism is, is really good for helping flourish both uh, society and creation. I invite listeners to check out your new book, Counting the Cost, Christian Perspectives on Capitalism. And uh, people can find out good information as well at the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics on the web. And that website is tifwe.org. Replay of the show can be found on graceand30.com and wera.fm websites. This is Ed and Sal signing off from Grace and 30. On WERALP Arlington, 96.7 FM. Have a great night, and be sure to tune in to Grace. Grace.